Thank you, uh, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, to Drisha's spring program and the third class of this session on the halachic process, a brief, a brief history with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. And with that, I'll turn this to you, Rabbi Ziering. Okay, thank you, Evie. Um, so it's good to see everyone again. I know it's uh, a legal holiday today, so I don't know what that does to everybody's uh, schedules. Um, I was, uh, I was very glad that people took me up on my offer and followed up with me this week by email, by phone. Um, and I really am happy to continue this conversation out of uh, beyond the, the hours of this class. Um, but let's get started with, uh, with this week's topic. So um, two weeks ago, we did a brief history of how we got to the, to the oral Torah. Uh, last week, we focused on the question of how the Bavli um, became binding, first how the Mishnah became binding, how the Almudim in general became binding, and then specifically uh, the Bavli. Um, and we noted the, the oddity that there really is such a thing as a binding text um, of oral law, considering the fact that the, uh, the Rambam writes that every generation, the court has the right to, uh, to interpret the Torah as they see fit. Um, and the limitations that we have in terms of a later court only having the authority to overturn um, previous court decisions seems to be limited to legislation, to rabbinic decrees. Um, but when it comes to biblical law, where every court in play is answerable to the text of the Torah. So it seems like the only thing you need is to have a new interpretation that's plausible within the Torah. And then you can challenge the authority of a, a previous court. Um, and that is, uh, once you establish that, that creates the problem that we dealt with last week, which is then why is it that post Bavli, we don't challenge uh, the Bavli, right? That's where we left off um, last week. But to um, just to look back at that that source uh, for a second, just to sort of orient ourselves here, um, it was this Rambam that we looked at last week, where the Rambam tells you in Mamrim Bet Aleph, Beitin Gadol Shedarshu Bachat Menamidok Fimashinir Ebeinahem Shadin Kach Vidanu Din, if a court uses one of the exegetical rules to judge, to, to interpret a law, and a later court comes and sees reason to contradict, override the original interpretation, it can contradict, and judge as they see fit, as we say to the judge that you have in your days, you're only obligated to follow the court in your generation. Today, though, I want to focus on a slightly different question, which is not why can't we challenge the Bavli, meaning if the Bavli says that the Pasuk, that the Torah means X, so we can't say not X. But today I want to deal with a different question, which is what if Chazal don't weigh in on a Pasuk at all? They don't offer an interpretation. They're neutral, blank, nothing. No interpretation is, is extant in the oral law. Not in the Mishnah, not in the Tosefta, not in the Sifra, not in the Sifra, not in the Mechilta, not in the Bavli, not in the Yishalmi, nothing, nowhere, period. But 
not me, but I don't know, someone with broad enough shoulders looks at the Torah and says, I'm convinced, however, that the Torah tells me that this is a mitzvah. This is forbidden. This is whatever. They're not contradicting the Bavli. They're not contradicting Chazal. They're just introducing something that Chazal didn't talk about directly. Do they have the authority to do that? Or as I put it, maybe a bit provocatively in the title, right? Are we rabbinic Jews or biblical Jews? Do we still derive halacha from the Chumash? Maybe that's too strong, but we'll, we'll go with it for now. But meaning, is it, right? Last week, we, we established why it is you can't challenge the Bavli. But now we're asking a different question. Once we'd accepted the Bavli, does that mean that the only halachic lens through which we can view the Torah is the Bavli or Chazal, maybe broadly speaking, right? Maybe the Ruchalmi when it doesn't contradict the Bavli, maybe the Tosefta when it doesn't contradict the Bavli, take whatever formulation you want. Or can we still use the Torah as direct halachic instruction unmediated by the lens of Chazal? And if we can, under what circumstances, what would that look like? Um, how would that play out? And then we'll have to ask the same thing, not just about Chumash, but about Nevi'im and Kuvim, which as we already talked about in the first week, are in general less of a uh, authoritative text for halachic purposes. So that's our goal today. I see I already have chat, so let me just check it before I move on. Um, well, we'll see. Isn't this what other denominations uh, claim? So <clears throat> I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an expert in um, in non-orthodox psak. I, I read a, a significant amount of conservative and reform uh, halacha. Um, in the case of reform halacha, um, they don't share the assumption that bavli is binding. Um, conservative halacha, as I understand it, does. Um, I don't know if either has a particular position on whether you can interpret the Torah unmediated through Chazal. I, I don't. I don't know. Um, so I'll, I'll bracket that question. I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer. Um, okay, now in source one, just to have it again, this was something we discussed two weeks ago, um, was simply the notion that for the Rambam, um, one of the definitions of the word Mara is simply the ability to understand the trajectory from Torah to Torah from the written law to the oral law. Um, so of course, Whatever you think about whether we can interpret new laws out of the Torah, um, derive new laws from the Torah, it's clear that for the Rambam, part of being a rabbinic Jew is being cognizant of the path that was taken from the Torah to the rabbinic law. Um, so that's important, right? Meaning, even if we say you can't derive new law, that doesn't mean that, at least for the Rambam, it's legitimate to sort of you know, just say, look, I'll learn Dafyomi and I'll uh, I'll understand everything through the lens of the Gemara. And if I don't understand how we got there from the Psukim, who cares, right? That's not true either. It's clear that you need to understand that journey. Um, but that still doesn't get us to um, the creation of new law. So let's see. So uh, as I mentioned briefly last week, the best way to figure out whether or not rabbis post-skim Halachic authorities through the generations have thought that they could derive new law from the Torah is either to, you know, have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of Torah 
comb through all of Torah, find every place that it seems like rabbi, posek, authority, X, Y, and Z are deriving new law from the Torah. That's one way. Or there's a slightly easier way if you happen not to have that type of encyclopedic knowledge is to find the authorities who themselves were convinced you were not allowed to do it. And therefore, in their zeal to prove that you couldn't do it, identified hundreds of places where people seem to do exactly what they think is forbidden. So that's basically what I did. Um, and if you go through certain authorities, you'll see that they believe that you are not allowed to derive new law from the Torah, but they think that, and they think that should be a given. And yet, as we'll see, they thought that other people did not agree with them and they begin to list them, which thereby gives us the two main pictures that we'll see, the two schools of thought. Okay, so the Eliyahu Mizrahi, writing um, about, five, about 500 years ago, a little bit more, comments on a Rambam, and he writes as follows. He says, I don't understand how other authorities seem to be deriving law directly from the Torah with an Eino Inyan, meaning using one of the hermeneutic methods from which we derive law. Not everyone can do that. Except for the rabbis of the Mishnah and the Talmud. Because their words are the, um, the words of tradition. But nobody else. But no one else, not the Gonim, not the Rishonim, not the medieval sages, and definitely not anyone that comes after them. So just in this comment, you see the two camps that we have set up. You have the camps staked out by Rebellio Mizrahi, which is when we say that we accept the Bavli, we don't just mean that we can no longer challenge the interpretations of the Torah that they offer. What we mean is we can no longer offer interpretations not offered by them. Okay, I'll say that one more time, right? Not only can we not challenge the interpretations they offer, but we can't offer interpretations not offered by them, right? That's what it means to have accepted the Bavli. Not just to accept that we can't challenge it, but that the Bavli or maybe slightly more broadly, Chazal, so Bavli, Yerushalmi, Mishnah, whatever, that contains the entirety of anything that can be considered biblical law, that can be considered legitimate interpretation of the Torah for legal purposes. So obviously, as I'm sure many of you, you know, I'm not talking here about non-halachic things. I'm not talking about whether you can interpret the Torah in ways that were not accepted by the Midrash on non-halachic matters, on philosophical matters, on exegetical matters, on narrative issues. That's not what I mean. Right? That different dispute, right? many, many, many more 
interpreters were willing to accept um, reading the Torah on the narrative, non-legal parts in ways that the rabbis did not in the Talmud or in the Midrash. Not everyone. Some people thought that was heretical. Um, in at least one text attributed to the Rif, Rivisical Fasi, the major 10th century Moroccan Posek, um, he defines um, one of the categories of people who have no, no place in the world to come as those who offer even narrative interpretations against the Midrash. Uh, it happens to be that that text is probably not real. I mean, not, I mean, real, it's just not the Rif. It's someone else interpreted it later, but that's a school of thought, but that's not the issue we're talking about now. We're talking about halach. So Rabbi Leo Mizrahi represents the school who says that just like we accepted that we can't challenge their interpretations, we can't offer new ones. Now, what's the logic for such an argument? So, um, so let me skip here to number seven for a minute because we mentioned this last week. So the logic, one could offer an, a logic, something along the following lines. We mentioned already last week the position of the Chazan Ish, of Rav Avram Yeshaya Karelitz, living in the 20th century, 19th, 20th, the major father of, uh, of Israeli Haredi Judaism, non-Hasidic Haredi Judaism, a major posek in the middle 20th century, um, where he argued that the reason we accept the Bavli were two reasons. One is because the rabbis of the Talmud were right. They were, they were closer to the truth. And therefore, if they said something, it's true. And you can never challenge the truth. That was point one he made. The second point, however, he makes is a much more interesting metaphysical argument, which I briefly mentioned last week, but I put it here um, explicitly. And it's based on a very interesting Agadic passage in Avodah Zarah 9a, which says as follows, Tana alafim shana The world is 6,000 years. Don't ask me what that means. I have no idea, right? The world for in all of history is 6,000. Okay, fine. 2,000 years are defined as the years of desolation. That's presumably the beginning of creation, okay? From creation until 2,000 years, so more or less the time of Avraham, which according to the Midrashic genealogy would put, chronology would put him at the year 1948 of not, you know, the establishment of the state of Israel, not that 1948, but the original 1948 from the creation of the world. So that first 2,000 years is nothingness. It's creation, it's chaos. Jewish history basically starts around the year 2000, give or take, for the Midrash. Shnei alafim, Torah. The next 2,000 years are the years of Torah. Shnei alafim, Yemot Mashiach. And then the last 2,000 years of history are the Messianic days. Now, I'll be honest, I have no idea what this Midrashic comment means, but we'll focus for on the Chazanish's interpretation. The Chazanish interprets it as follows. What this means is that metaphysically speaking, the middle 2000 years of history, so more or less from when Avram Avinu and Abraham walked the earth until if you do the math 2000 years later, which is 
more or less around the time of the Mishnah, right, give or take, that is the time in which Torah is created. Those are the 2,000 years of Torah. After that, we don't create new Torah. We interpret Torah, but we don't create Torah. And therefore, if you follow the Chazanish's theological comment here, what you would derive is that it's not just that we can't challenge the Talmud, we can't challenge the Mishnah, but we can't create new law. Obviously, we can be creative in our interpretations of the Bavli. And as we know, right, I mean, you know, my shelves behind me, you know, you can see, right, pages and right, thousands of pages of interpretation up to the ceiling here. And this is, you know, a drop in the bucket. We're very good at being creative interpretation, but it's interpretation. It's not creation. It's not new exegesis. It's not new derivation. So this would justify one vision of what it meant to accept the novel. Not just that we can't challenge its interpretations, but we can't offer interpretations it did not offer. And you get this in plenty of codifiers. So people like the Stechemet who is in the Encyclopedia Talmudit before there was an Encyclopedia Talmudit, and he did it all by heart. The Stechamed writes in his Klaleha Poskim, in his Rules for Halachic Authorities, we cannot make our own derivations. Even if we find a derivation in Shas for one purpose, we cannot expound from it to other cases of our own accord. <clears throat> so not only can we not derive new things from the Torah, I mean, from the Chumash, even if Chazal identified a particular pasuk as a verse from which you could derive law and they used it in one way, you can't even use it in a slightly different way. No expanding, no changing, no nothing. What they said, we interpret. What they didn't say, that's it. We don't have a independent access. We don't have independent access to the Torah for legal purposes. We can look at it. We can be inspired by it. We can understand how the rabbis derived the law they did. We can argue from now until forever about what they meant, but no new interpretations. The Yad Malachi says the same thing. And this seems to be a given for many, many authorities. Okay, wait, I see a question. Okay, so Ozzy points out that inter interpretation is creating new laws. So I'm willing to grant that. I'm willing to grant then that often, right, interpretation has the functional equivalence of creating new law. That's true. Creative interpretation definitely has the functional ability to create new law, at least in practice. Um, but be that as it may, um, we still view it as interpretation. Um, what that means and what it means when interpretation essentially generates new law is a very interesting question. Um, and in what sense, when, at what point can, is an interpretation so radical that it essentially generates new law is a important question, but not the question we're addressing today, but I'm, I'm willing to grant the point that at least sometimes interpretation can seem to create new law, but at least it's attempting to interpret Chazal rather than the Torah directly. Um, and yes, there are limits to, uh, to that. Okay. But there is another school of thought. 
And there are some pretty big names, some heavy hitters in the other school of thought. So let's get right to the biggest name on that list. And that is the Rambam, Maimonides, the Nesher Hagadol, the Great Eagle, whatever you want to call him, right? Definitely in, you know, our top five of, you know, postgim since the closing of the Talmud. Right? We're talking someone who's left his mark on halacha, on philosophy, on everything, right? Much of the history since the Rambam are people either interpreting him or challenging him. He's the elephant in the room. No one can ever deny the importance of the Rambam. But let me read you a Rambam. So here's a Rambam in number four. The Rambam writes in Ma'achalat Asrot Bet Gimel, in the laws of forbidden foods, two, three. Adam. Well, you know, I'll say it outside, then I'll read it inside. We know that there are kosher animals. We know there are non-kosher animals. The Rambam dealt with a question probably I hope that none of you have ever faced, nor will ever face. But what is the status of human flesh in halacha? Shockingly enough, the Gemara doesn't really address it. What is the status of human flesh? Obviously, you can't kill a person to eat them. We know that. That's given. That's called murder. This is not, that's not what I'm talking about. But human flesh on a dead carcass, what is it? Is it kosher? Is it not kosher? People aren't really animals. So how do you define them? What do you do? So the Rambam says the following, Adam, human flesh. The Torah does call him, and man was a beast with a soul. So you might have thought he's an animal. He's not an animal. Because if he was an animal, I would know he's not kosher. Because... He doesn't have, he doesn't chew his cud and he doesn't have split hooves, right? Meaning we have a rubric. If there is an animal, we know how to figure out whether it's kosher. If it chews its cud and it has split hooves. If human beings were halachically animals, so then we would know they're not kosher because they don't have either of those features. But he says they're not animals. And therefore they can't be included in the prohibition against eating human flesh. Any, against eating animal, not kosher animal flesh, because they're not animals. So if someone were to eat human flesh or human fat, whether it, obviously you can't rip it off, meaning it fell off, right? Someone got cut, there's some skin on the, you know, on the pavement, okay, disgusting. But if one were to eat it, you don't get malka. You don't get lashes. Aval asurhu ba'ase, but it is forbidden by virtue of a positive commandment. Meaning, normally you only get lashes if something is prohibited by virtue of a direct prohibition. Don't do X. But it's not a prohibition. It's an implied prohibition from a positive command. So it's forbidden, but forbidden without lashes. Shahare, how does he know? Because the Torah counted the seven animals, meaning wild animals, and said about the wild animals, the undomesticated animals, these are the undomesticated animals that you can eat. And from here, the Rambam derives, 
but anything which is not those, you cannot eat. A prohibition which is derived by implication from a positive command has the legal status of a positive command. So the Rambam argues that if one were to eat human flesh, it's disgusting, don't do it, whatever, not my point. But if one did, you don't violate a prohibition because human beings are not animals and therefore they're not forbidden by don't eat not kosher animals. But by implication, you only eat the living creatures, the beasts that are kosher. And since it's not explicit, human beings are not explicitly kosher. So it is forbidden by implication by the positive command. Now, that derivation appears nowhere, not in Mishnah, not in Tosefta, not in Midrash Halacha, not in Bavli, not in Yerushalmi, nowhere. And the Ra'ah, Rav Aaron Halevi, writing in the 13th century in Spain, the student of the Ramban, looks at this Ramban, uh, this Ramban and he says, Divrei Temahe. These words are shocking. Anon litlan lemidrash proi dilo darshi luhu rabbanan. Because we cannot expound verses that the sages did not. But here the ra'ah gives you gives away a golden clue. And he says, I disagree with the Rambam. Because the Rambam seemed to have learned seem to have derived new law straight from the Torah that the rabbis never said. So the Ra'ah goes very firmly in the camp that you can't do this. But that means you have a major medieval commentary, a Rishon, the Ra'ah, telling you he doesn't like it, but the Rambam seems to be the father of the other camp. That the Rambam is totally comfortable saying, you know what? I read the Torah. It seemed to tell me X. I know the rabbis never said it in the Talmud, but you know what? It makes sense to me. So I'm going to tell you that I am creating a new mitzvah straight on, based on my interpretation of Chumash, of what God said, unmediated by the rabbis of the Talmud, of the Mishnah, of the Tosefta, period. Unmediated, I have interpreted the Torah and I have invented a mitzvah asay, a positive command from the Torah. So now Zira'ah has just done us the favor of telling us that there are two visions here. There's the vision of his own vision, which is supported by the Stechemer and the Yad Malachi and the Rebel Mizrahi that our acceptance of the Bavli is not just that we cannot challenge the rabbi's interpretations of the law, but we cannot offer interpretations they did not offer. And then he identifies another camp, the Rambam, who is willing to take matters into his own hands. And if the rabbis didn't weigh in, he felt that when we said we accepted the Bavli, that means we accepted it not to challenge it. But we can still interpret the law, find new mitzvot, if that's what we see, and rule accordingly for legal purposes. 
And it's not just the Rambam, and I'll just make this comment, then I'll, I see I have questions, and I'll, I'll pause for more questions. Both the Seichemet that we saw before and the Yad Malachi, which I didn't put on the sheet, both of them, in their, in the context of them asserting that it is obvious that we can't offer new interpretations of the Chumash that the rabbis didn't, they list for you all seeming counterexamples in rabbinic literature, which means that it's not just the Rambam. There are many authorities throughout the generations that the Stechemen may not have liked it, the Amalachi may not have liked it, the Ra'ad didn't like it, but they recognized, acknowledged that there was another camp, another view, another vision, which said what it meant to accept the Bavli was to not challenge it. But we're still allowed to look for new interpretations of the Torah and derive law directly from the Torah. Okay, I'm going to pause for questions. I see I have a few um, uh, here in the chat. Um, so, okay, so Nissan asks, which of the 13 Midot? I don't even think it's the 13 Midot, right? This is just his read of a Pasuk, right? So he gets straight to a, uh, a Mitzvah Rase, right? He doesn't even use one of the, uh, I mean, Lava Bami Chalase. It's not really one of the, the Drasho. He just seems to but read the Torah and say, you know what? This is what the Torah point. tells me. Sorry? Rambam may disagree with Ra'ah, but only on this matter. In other words, the Yudgimel Midot are exclusively the province of Chazal. But, so he Correct. would agree it, with the Ra'ah on that, it, it is, on that idea, but not, but not to take oh, it, it is, It's possible, it's possible that the Rambam would be very limited. Right? It's possible that the Rambam would say, if I interpret something directly from a Pasuk without the, the rules of exegesis, so that I can do. But the rules of exegesis, I don't know how to use. It's possible. I don't know. Meaning the Rambam, he doesn't tell you, right? He clearly, the Ra clearly felt that what the Rambam was doing was violating his rule that you can't derive new law from the Torah, right? He didn't, the Ra didn't distinguish between direct interpretation or interpretation through the hermeneutical rules. He didn't, he thought all of it was problematic. It could be that the Rambam has a, has a, you know, as a middle position where you can derive it directly, but not through the, the mito, just through direct reading, it could be, right? The Ra thought even that was off limits. The Rambam did not, but you, you're right. It could be that the Yudhimo Mita would be, would be different. I don't think it's from logic. Ozzy says from logic. I don't know if it's from logic, meaning it's from his read of the Torah. Um, it may not be the Yudhimo Mita, but it's, it is a read of a Pasuk. Um, and, uh, and no, Chazal never talk about eating human beings, shockingly enough, yes. Yes, that is a shocking, a shocking statement. Um, some of you have probably heard um, the story that was legendary when I was in, uh, in, in, in Yeshiva and Gush. It's one of those stories that just gets sort of floated around um, that Rav Luchemstein and Rami Tal were both posed the question, the two founding Rashi Yeshiva. Um, what would you, uh, if you were stuck on a desert island and, uh, the only food you had were not was not kosher food or a decaying human corpse, right? You didn't kill the person; they're just dead. Which flesh do you eat first to uh, to survive? And Rav Luchlinstein said, um, "The human flesh, because according to the Rambam, it's only mitzvah say, and according to most Rishonim, it's maybe derabanan, it's rabbinic. We don't even know what it is." There doesn't the formal level of prohibition of eating human flesh is lesser than that of eating non-kosher animals, whatever it is. 
And Rav Amital said, what are you talking about? It may not be formally forbidden, but it runs against natural morality and natural morality is stronger than law. So you would eat the not kosher animal before you would eat the human flesh. That machloket itself deserves a sheer in and of its own, in its own right about the nature of natural morality and how you figure that out and, and, and its extent and the dangers of it. But I, I can't not at least mention it. Um, so yes, I mean, Ravami Tal took it as a given that just because the Torah didn't say it, that could be because it didn't need to. It was so obvious. Um, that's, a, that's, an empirical, that's, a, that's an epistemic claim that, you know, either you have an intuition, you share it or you don't. Um, okay, I see more questions. One second. Luchlinstein um, said there's no contradiction between halacha and natural law. Um, yes, he does say that in, in certain places. Um, but uh, nevertheless, um, Steve writes a year into the pandemic and the explosion of Zoom and other video virtual technology programs like this, but also for Shabbat service and other holidays, Kaddish and prayers across the world and time zones with the second pass we're coming up. Can you address the overall halacha and what you see? What happens in the future beyond the pandemic? See, we won't go back to the things. Um, okay, so the I mean, the question of whether technology that's that's a much broader question, uh, you know, it could be that certain things will have to derive directly, you know, so in from in unmediated ways from the from the Torah. But that's um, I think that's a much broader question. I'm happy to follow up after Shear, but um, I'll have to bracket it till after Shear. But I will stay on. Or as people, as I mentioned, for the people who came a little bit late, I've had a very active week of people emailing me and calling me, following up on the Shear. I really am very open to it. So if you have a question that's not directly related to the Shear, I'm happy to talk about it. But just we'll we'll, we'll bracket it till uh, till after till after the Shear. Um, okay, but well, we have our two camps. Have Those question. who believe, yeah, we have another question. Yeah, um, yeah. So who's talking? I just oh, Dan. Thank you, Dolly. Okay, I go. Um, I, I just wanted to. Um, I unfortunately don't remember it precisely, but um, along the point that that, that um, I think Nissan made before about um, thirteen principles, um, I know that there's even the even the Chazal of of the of the Mishnah and, and, and the Talmud were very. <laughs> Um, were very uh, kick, um, even in certain cases they weren't allowed to use the thirteen principles. It was a very, um, very daunting task. To, like I think they had to have the Masora that how to use the principles okay, correctly. Good. So, so Dan makes a very fair point, which is at least some of the rules, like Zera Shava, the Gemara says, if you don't have a direct tradition from Sinai or from your rabbis, at least. You can't just make a Xerah Shava. So I agree with you. I don't think the Ramam would think you could do a Xerah Shava. But let's say some of the 13 Yugnam that are logic based, like Kalva Homer, right? That I'm not sure, right? Meaning a Kalva Homer is defined by Chazal as one of the ways we derive the Torah, things from the Torah, but is purely logic based. It doesn't require tradition. That's his whole point, right? It's just if X, then definitely Y, because logically it flows, right? So you're, you're right about some of the Yudimomidan. We'd have to go through each one. Certain of them, that's not necessarily the case. Kalvachomer is the most likely candidate for someone to derive law, um, I think, post-Talmud, because it really is just a logical principle, right? It's just, you know, if something's true in the lesser case, it must be true in the more extreme. Okay. <laughs> now, I gave a bunch of examples here. I'm not going to read all of these inside, but I gave you a bunch. Um, I actually realized I didn't put one of my favorite, so maybe I'll say that outside, and I'm going to run through some of these, um, but I put them there with translation, 
Many of the later examples that I have, I just, I'll just draw your attention to the final page here. I gave you two excellent um, articles or books really on this topic. Um, one is um, um, Yitzchak Giat's Prakim Bishkal Shalut HaLacha. He has a chapter on the, uh, Yitzchak Gilat rather. Um, he has one chapter in his book from pages 375 to 393. Um, and a good percentage of um, Or Sameach HaLacha Mishpat, which is Yitzchak Cohen's dissertation on the methodology of, uh, of Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, the Or Sameach, the Meshachachma, author of both of those books, uh, is devoted to this question for reasons that we'll see in just a minute. But if you're interested in this topic and want to follow up, those are the places that I would go to. I just put it at the bottom of the of the source sheet um, for further reading. Um, okay, um, one of my favorite examples of this, um, and is maybe more accessible than some of those that I put here, is a um, a tshuva by the Nitziv, Rav Natsali Tzvi Berlin, the father of the, um, well, since I'm saying this outside, I'll, for a moment, do off share screen so I can see everybody. Um, Rav Natsali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the father of the modern yeshiva movement, essentially, um, student of Rechaim Belazhin. So let's say that the yeshiva movement started more or less with the students of the Vilna Gaon, which as we talked about two weeks ago is, you know, Vilna Gaon is contemporary with George Washington. So Nitziv, let's talk about 19th century. He has the following very interesting question. A classic medieval question that was raised in the laws of Kibbutz Avaim of honoring parents was, is a father allowed to sell, tell his son who not to marry? Is that under the parameters of Kibbutz Avaim? So classically in Halacha, the the Rama, the, fa the, the father of Ashkenazi Zak, rules like the Maharik, like Marie Cologne, writing in the 15th century, who says, no, a father cannot. And I'll tell you why. Because Chazal have two categories of honoring parents. One is called Kavod, honor. The other is Yira, is fear or reverence. Kavod entails physically aiding your parents, food, giving them food, drink, things like that. And I, I will just throw out there that it's probably wrong to think about kibbutz avaim as primarily a kid's mitzvah, right? You know, some people are like, they tell their little kids, oh, can you get, you know, can you get mommy or daddy a drink of water? And that's kibbutz avaim. That's probably not what it means. It means more like, you know, adult parents with aging, weak, elderly, sick parents helping them when they can't eat or they can't dress themselves, right? That's, that's probably the primarily, primary interpretation of that law. That's kavod. And you're right, don't contradict them, don't use their first name, things like that. Marik says, aim from based on these categories, is limited to cases where the, the parent is asking the child to do something that physically directly benefits the parent. But since who the child marry, marries is primarily about the child's life and their happiness and enjoyment, not the parents, there might be ancillary impact on the parent's psychological well-being. But that's not what's going on here, right? It's not directly benefiting the parents or causing detriment. It's the child's life and child's happiness. Plus the fact that getting married is a mitzvah and therefore 
the parent by telling him who not to marry is in some way infringing on mitzvah territory, the parent has no right to tell the child who to marry. And the Ramah Paskins like that, and that becomes pretty normative halachic rulings for first hundreds of years. And Siv comes along and says, I agree sometimes. If the parent doesn't like who the child wants to marry, so it's not kavod, it's not yirah, the child can do whatever they want. But let's say that the person who the kid wants to marry <clears throat> is so, I don't know, they're so, such a low life, so infamous that it wouldn't just make the parent uncomfortable, but it would humiliate the parent. So then the Nitzv says, you know what? The rabbis in the Talmud talked about kavod, and they talked about yirah, fear and honor, but there's a third mitzvah that the rabbis never addressed, hidden at the end of the Torah, in the middle of the klalot, in the middle of the curses on Har Grizim and Har Eval, on Mount Grizim and Mount Eval, which is Arur Maklet of Vivimo. Cursed is he who degrades, who humiliates, who denigrates his parents. And that Siv says, if the person you would marry <clears throat> would humiliate your parents, then they can stop you because it's not kavod, but it is makle, right? And that Siv introduces a totally new mitzvah. And Ribavadi Yosef, who's a pretty conservative posseg, he doesn't poskin like the Siv exactly. He spends <laughs> pages trying to figure out how he can practically disagree with the Nitziv, but still let the Nitziv live on in halachic discourse. So he basically, it's a very interesting piece. He says, well, based on the Maharek, how is it that Avram told Yitzchak not to marry a Kanani? Doesn't that violate the Torah because a parent isn't allowed to tell their kid who not to marry? So he answers that question with the Nitziv. And he says, only if the degradation that would come to the parents is of the level that would be if one of the Avot had married a Kanani who God himself had declared first, then Makla applies. Otherwise, it doesn't. But what you see in the Rebavadya is that he practically basically brackets the Nitziv into a case that never applies. But in principle, he doesn't think it's impossible that the Nitziv could have introduced a new mitzvah. Right? He created a third mitzvah, not just Kiprav Meim, not just Moravadim, but Makle of the email, and there are halachic implications to this. Give you a few other examples. Because <laughs> I, I want to show you how shocking this really is. It's not just Chumish. We, we noted already that we only derive law really from Chumish, but Nach, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim have secondary roles in terms of clarifying Torah. Can you come up with new interpretations of law based on your interpretation of Navi that the rabbis never said? Well, let's see. So let's look at 10. <clears throat> the Rambam says, If someone kills a healthy person or a sick person who's on the verge of dying, or even someone in the middle of his death throes, 
Neheragalav, he's killed. But if the person wasn't dying because of illness, but had been wounded, he's in the death throes because someone else attacked him. So then if he kills, if, sorry, if someone kills that person, the court can't put him to death. Right? So the Ramam says that even though the Gemara tells us that it's forbidden to kill even a Gosis, and if someone is in their death throes and you hasten their death, right? You classic case, someone is about to die and you close their eyelids and that makes their, them die a second earlier, you are liable for the death penalty. That's what the Gemara says. And then the Ramam comes up with a new law, which is that's only if someone is dying because of old age or illness or some internal um, health problem. But if they were attacked and wounded and they're dying because of their wound, so then if someone kills him, he's not liable to the death penalty. So everyone wants to know, how the Ramam know that? Where did the Ramam make up that law? The Gemara says that if someone is on, in his, on his deathbed and you hasten his death, that's called murder. And the Ramam comes along and says, unless they were wounded and were dying from a wound, in which case it's not full murder, so you don't get the death penalty. Where did the Ramam get that? So the Orsameach, Rameer Simchov Dvinsk, says, well, I know. He got it from number nine in sh the first parak of Shmuel Bet. So Shmuel Aleph ends <clears throat> that Shaul and Yonatan, Shaul the king, and Yonatan the crown prince who never became king of, uh, of Israel, they get killed at war. Shaul specifically is wounded and commits, as, show, as it's told in the end of Shmuel Aleph, commits suicide because he doesn't want to be captured alive by the enemy, so he throws himself on his sword. But in the beginning of Shmuel Bet, we get a different story. And an Amaleki convert, um, <clears throat> or... What? Oh, okay, I don't know what was happening there. Okay. Um, um, okay. So the what happens to the Amaleki? So the Amaleki youth comes to David and he tells David that Shaul didn't die, didn't commit suicide, but rather this Amaleki youth had found Shaul and had killed him. And David says to him, How did you not have how are you not afraid to kill the anointed one of God? So he told one of his men, kill him. And David said, you, your blood is on your own head. Why? Because you admitted that that I killed the anointed one of God. So Mayor Simchav Dvinsk in 11 says, well, wait a second. Why didn't David just say, the Gemara says that if someone's in their death throes and you kill them, it's murder. And therefore kill the Amaleki for murder. 
why did he say you're being killed? Not because you murdered, but because you killed the anointed one of God, the king. It sounds like this is some unique law about the king. It's not about murder. It's about ending the life of the king, which is some unique halacha. So your Sameach says, aha, this must be the Rambam's source. This must be the Rambam's source. That since he didn't tell him you're really a murderer, he said you killed the king and that deserves the death penalty, implying that had you killed someone else who was wounded and was about to die because of their wounds, you wouldn't have been liable to the death penalty? That implication is the source of the Rambam's law. Now, this is shocking. This means, now, let's say if you accept the Orsamech's interpretation, this is shocking, because that means that the Rambam, not only is he willing to derive new laws from the Torah, but he's willing to take implications from Navi and create and interpret laws that it seem in tension with the Talmud. I mean, you can work it out with the Talmud by distinguishing between the two different types of agosis, natural death rows and, and wound-inflicted death rows. But still, that means that the Orsameach thinks that the Rambam is willing to interpret new laws based on an implication in a pasuk in Navi, which is not really a primary source for law. That's strongest case scenario. Weaker scenario is that a major 19th, 20th century posig believed that that was legitimate, right? So best case scenario is the Rambam himself believed this. Worst case scenario or weaker scenario is that the Orsameach believed this is true. Um, and this isn't thrown out by later poskim. So if you look in 12, the Tzitzeliezer, <clears throat> who is like the father of Waldenberg, who's the father of modern medical ethics, essentially, in Halacha, he basically accepts this interpretation. He basically accepts this interpretation. Now, I see we're running short on, on time here, so I'm, gonna, so I'm not going to go through all the other examples, but I'll tell you what they are, right? 13, 14, um, 13 and 14, are about a, um, a halacha of, of reinternment, where Shulchan Aruch says that you can't move a body from a city to another city unless you're going from the diaspora to Israel. And then the Ramah adds <clears throat> that it's also permitted to move someone to their family plot. Now, this also seems to go against the Gemara because the Gemara is opposed to reinternment. So, where does the Ramah get this idea that it's permitted? To, um, to move a body to a family for a family plot. So the again, the Meshachachma, the Orsameach, derives it from a complicated story in Navi based on Pinchas and Elazar. I don't want to, you know, I, I can't get into all the details, but what I want to point out is that Ramosha Feinstein entertains this exact interpretation based on Remeir Simcha, and is willing to rely on him, at least in extenuating circumstances. Which means that, again, did the Rambam think that you could derive new law from Navi? I don't know. Or Sameach thought that that's what the Rambam meant. And you have at least two major 20th century postkim, Ramosha Feinstein, 
and the Tzitz Eliezer, both willing to rule in accordance with the Orsameach's belief that you can create new law from Navi post-Talmud. And Reb Herzog, um, on the other hand, did not like it. In 16, Reb Herzog pushes back on it. Um, you get another case where the Tzitz Eliezer does this in 17. <clears throat> I list another case um, in 18, right? And this becomes, the Meshachachma does it in many, many places. But what's amazing is that major 20th century postgivers, Feinstein, Tzitzeliezer, are willing to accept that this is how Lacha works. So before, I see a bunch of questions piling up. So let me summarize what we've seen so far. Therefore, to our main question. Last week, we established you can't challenge the Bavli. You can't go against their interpretations of the law. But can you create new law that they didn't address? Through Yudgimomidot, maybe not. Through direct interpretation of Torah, or maybe even through implications of Navi, which is even more radical. The Rambam seems to think, at least biblical law, yes. The Nitziv, yes. Rameir Simcha says, even from Navi, he thinks the Rambam thinks you can derive new law. Ramosha Feinstein, Sicily Ezer, they're willing to entertain. That's true. And they're willing to incorporate it into their psaq, which means that you have this major dispute, which is what did it mean when we discovered last week that the Bavli is the be all and end all? Did that mean you can't interpret against and we can't offer new interpretation of the Torah that it's an offer? We can only interpret it, it's the new canonical text. Or did it just mean that whatever they said, we accept? But if there's something they didn't address, then we're free to interpret the Torah directly. And that's, that's a very important question. That's a very, very important question. Okay, let me, uh, I'm debating whether to, okay, I see I have five minutes left. So I'm gonna take all the questions in five, in, 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 I'm gonna try to make two more points. Uh, I'll try to make two more points. And then I'll take the questions. <clears throat> I think that to fully understand the story, though, we just have to make a, a few points which should be obvious, but are not always obvious. Um, what we've been talking about until now is strict letter of the law. I think no one would argue that when what we're dealing with is not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, that everyone will agree that direct interface with Torah, with Navi and Ketuvim, obviously is the inspiration in all the grays of life. Right now, that should be an obvious point, but I'm not sure it always is. Right? Meaning there are a lot of things in life which are not directly asur mutar, permitted, forbidden, obligatory. They're somewhere in the middle. They're proper or improper. They're the ethos of Torah. The ethos of Torah that obviously you should be inspired by the narratives of Torah, by the laws of Torah to figure out a broader worldview. And I put here the, the celebrated passages in the Ramban, um, where I'll say it outside, but the Ramban has his theory of life is exactly this that the Torah has two mitzvot, Kidoshim to you, when it comes to um, ritual mitzvot between man and God. And vasitaha yashar vatov, do what is right and good in the eyes of God when it comes to 
um, interpersonal law. And his theory is basically as follows. I'll, I'll read the key here. The Torah cannot mention all activities of a person with his neighbors and friends, all his business, all civil and social issues. Right? He just says, look, the Torah cannot cover in detail what you should do in every single case in life. And therefore, what the Torah did is at the end, it gave you a catch-all mitzvah. A catch-all which said, when there isn't a law, do the right thing. How do you know what the right thing is? Take the broader picture that emerges from the Torah. The, the image that I always go back to, I heard my first week in Yeshiva from Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, which is the mitzvot are the dots on a connective dot picture. And the spirit of the law is the picture that emerges when you connect the dots, right? What the Ramban is telling you, when things are gray, connect the dots and figure out what God wants from you. Obviously, in all the gray areas of life, all of Torah, law, narrative, continues to be an active source of inspiration. That is obvious. In 22, I gave you the note of Yehuda, who says that this is true even of the narratives. Um, and then Neu de Bihuda um, rules that it's not forbidden to go hunting, but it's just the wrong thing to do because all the hunters in Tanakh are bad people, right? So that's an example of, of him saying, look, maybe direct law I can't derive from the, from the Torah, <clears throat> but the ethics of Torah, I definitely can derive. So I think even if you disagree with everything we said in the first 50 minutes, which is maybe it's possible to derive new law from Torah, we can't forget that much of Jewish life is not law, right? It's the gray in between law. And in those areas, the totality of Torah, spirit of the narratives and of the law continue to inspire us and teach us what to do. And at the end, and I see we don't have time, but I gave you an interesting um, example uh, of sort of a modern version of this. Uh, if you remember a few years ago, there was the, the wedding of hate where they, uh, had a they caught a wedding of um, a religious Zionist community where basically they were singing vengeance songs based on Shimshon um, and uh, and were acting out acts of violence against uh, uh, you know Palestinians not not in practice but you know acting it out um, and um, Rav Bazak had written a Facebook post and said the problem here was that they were going back to Tanakh without Chazal right as if Shimshon was a posig. And we don't, we only read the, the Gemara. And Rav Yol Benun responded and said, that's not the problem. The problem is that they understood the Torah wrong, right? Um, and this was this interesting dispute where Bazak, his claim was, the problem is that we are constrained by Chazal, which is much more legalistic. And even if that's the right interpretation of Tanakh, it shouldn't guide the way we live. And Rav, Rav Yol Benun said, no, 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 we can look at Tanakh for guide to practice. You just gotta get it right, right? So that was a sort of an interesting modern version of it. My time is up, so I will now take questions. I will officially say I'm over, but I'm taking questions. And as with last week, I will stay around for questions and you can follow up by email, uh, et cetera. Okay, let's see what we got. Um, Ozzy says that this sounds like mercy killing. Yes, it does sound like mercy killing, um, which definitely happened in war, but is classically understood to be forbidden. Um, it's not, but you're right, that if you wanted to take this as a source, you might get to the result that mercy killing is permitted. As far as this was a dispute, I did not have a chance to put on the source sheet, but this was a machloket between Ruf Doran on the one hand and um, 
and Rav Neria um, on the other, where Rav Goran, not on the mercy killing, but Rav Goran took Shaul as a legal paradigm that if you're going to be captured by the enemy, you're allowed to commit suicide. And Rav Neria said, no, you can't, right? And this was a similar machlok to this. Rav Goran said, I can take a direct interpretation from Navi. And even though it seems to go against rabbinic um, law, if Navi says it, and that's how I interpret it, it must be right. And Rav Neria said, no, that's a very hard read of the rabbis. And therefore, either your interpretation of Navi is wrong, or you can't derive law from Navi, or Shaul was wrong. You can't paskin that way, right? So you have the same machloket based on this story um, between Rav Goran and, uh, and Rav Neria. Um, Nisan writes, so I'm saying the murder to the one who made him a ghost says, <coughs> not to the one who put the bullet in the man fatally wounded. Um, the is simply explaining why the crime of register is distinct and not to use this challenge as a challenge against the Ramam. Yes, right? Meaning if we wanted to be very precise, the Orsamech is making a claim of why the Ramam is not wrong and why this might be used as a as a sort. Yes, um, um, correct. And and the, the exact, like I said, the, the much of this comes from the Orsamech and, and this source that I put here at the end, if you want to go into all the examples in excruciating detail, of the Orsameh's particular vision of this. So Yitzhak Cohen does an excellent job. It's it's a really wonderful dissertation. Um, it's published as a book. Um, it's an excellent book. Um, but the Orsameh is very, very careful. And he's but to fully understand the extent to which he thought that this was true, you really have to trace all of his examples. And there are many, many, many of them. Um, and we had to rush through some of them here. But, but yes, some of the nuances is definitely lost um, here. Um, okay. Um, so that's it then for, for this week officially. As with last week, I will stick around for, for questions. Uh, just to give the, for people who need to run, just to give you the next three weeks, what we're doing. Uh, next week uh, is, I called it the age of codes, which is the question of how um, basically Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, how that came about and why that became accepted, um, which will then flow into the last two weeks in which we will deal with variations on the question of how do you define community um, in the globalized world? And how does that affect um, halacha, considering so much of halacha is based on minagamakom, on, on, on customs of place? So how does globalization affect um, the question of authority, the question of who is an Ashkenazi, Svardi? Do those terms mean anything? Um, should we, once we come to Israel, create a unified custom, or should we continue to embrace our different practices uh, how do you define Mardatra, right? Your 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 local authority in a world where it's just as easy to call someone in Israel as it is it is to call someone who lives next door to you. Um, as we'll get through as many of those questions as we can in weeks five and and six. That's sort of the roadmap until the end of the course. Um, thank you everyone for coming and learning. Like I said, I will stick around for questions as long as you want. Um, but we're officially done. So thank, thank you, you for coming. And I'll stop the share so I can see everyone better. Um, and and anyone who has questions, like I said, um, feel free. And you can also email me afterwards. Um, you know, you can email me, call me. And I, I like I said, I'm very glad that people took me up on that this week. Um, I, had, I had some fruitful conversations, both by email and by phone. Um, okay, I see I have a question in the chat. One second. I don't know why it's going in like font a thousand. So it's hard to one second. The email address. One second, let me just do this. Okay, here, if I do it in pop out, I got it, yeah. Um, okay, 
Um, so Judith asks, using spirit of the Torah is fraught with problems. We would not suggest that behavior between husband and wife should be based on Rivka's deception of Yitzchak or Jacob's many deceptions would end up haunting his life. Okay, good. So that's an excellent point. So let me let me respond with a multi-pronged answer here. Um, point one. Um, the Ramban himself, I think, is very careful. The Ramban, um, using, going back to the imagery that I borrowed from Rabbi Lipte, he thinks that the spirit of the law in Torah um, is very specific. It's not just reading the Torah and sort of figuring out what the, what the Torah tells you. <clears throat> what he thinks is it's the spirit of the laws, particularly, meaning you don't take all the narratives because you're right. The narratives, you could read it one way, you could read it positive, you could read it negative, but you take the mitzvot, the laws, and you piece them together <clears throat> and you get the spirit that emerges from the laws, from between the laws. So for example, his examples are, the Torah has appetitive limits, right? Things that limit the human appetite. Don't eat not kosher. Don't eat on Yom Kippur. That means the Torah thinks that you shouldn't be carried away by your, by your appetite to eat, neither in what you eat or when you eat. From here, the Ramban says, we can derive that gluttony is probably frowned upon, right? So that's an example the Ramban gives. That's a much more narrow um, spirit of the law than the spirit of the narrative. That's point one. Point two is, you're 100% right, Judith, is that we have to be very careful because like with halacha, narrative, there are different interpretations. And if you interpret something wrong or you take a story that properly understood should be negative and you take it as positive, so then you're going to have problems. And you're right. Um, and that highlights, but that highlights the, the, the fact that even if the narratives are a source of practical inspiration, the interpretation of those narratives is critical to figuring out what it tells you. So, you know, an, an example I like to use is um, imitatio day, right? Imitating God, right? That's one of the guiding principles for the Ramam of the Torah. And generally what that means is, oh, well, the Torah says you should be kind because God was kind. God is merciful to all. However, it also sometimes says that God is vengeful. So if you imitate God, so does that mean we should also be vengeful and we should be angry because sometimes God is angry, right? Um, and, uh, and unforgiving. Sometimes he's forgiving, but sometimes he's unforgiving. <clears throat> so on the one hand, we say you should imitate God. But on the other hand, we have an intuitive sense that you imitate certain properties of God and not all of them. It's true. It's a dangerous it's a dangerous thing. So either you say, look, some things we imitate, some we don't. Or you say, look, it's true. Usually we mimic God's kindness, but you know what? Maybe the Torah told us that God is vengeful for a reason and sometimes we should be vengeful. Now, when is that? I mean, that's a very dangerous thing to say, but I, um, I, I, I came across a while ago, I forget the name, 
of a, um, of a Christian theologian um, who, who made an interesting point. She said um, that it's important that the Torah describes God as vengeful and angry sometimes because when we see injustice, when it comes to human beings, we feel it's wrong if someone doesn't have righteous indignation, right? If you see someone being cruel to the poor or the, right? And you, if someone doesn't feel angry, we look at that person and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you see that there's something wrong? So she's, she said that the fact that the Torah describes God as um, angry or, or vengeful, yeah, as Ozzy just wrote, is another way of saying that God cares about justice. He's not apathetic, right? And in that sense, we should mimic it carefully, right? And say, yes, if we see injustice, we shouldn't be apathetic. We should feel like the, the wrong should be righted, right? What that tells me, though, is I think she's right, but what that tells me is that we have to be really careful, but even the potentially dangerous parts of Tanakh have things to teach us in our life. So you're right. Someone might learn from Rivka that you should be deceptive, or as you correctly note, maybe you learn from the fact that Yaakov seems to be haunted by his deception for the rest of his life. We should learn just how careful you have to be about deception. So I think even from the dangerous parts of Tanakh, we can learn things. The key is to put the right interpretation on it. That's much easier said than done. Much easier said than done. Um, but, uh, but still, I think the, the point remains that it exists, it's powerful, it can inspire, but just like with anything else in life, you've got to interpret it the right way because otherwise it could be dangerous. Um, That's I see one suggestion here in the chat from Gabe that we could uh, mimic, I assume you mean God's anger to get things in motion, leave God to do the rest. That may be true also, meaning, yes, certain times we leave God to actually carry out the punishment, um, but mimicking God's uh, indignation may be a good way of expressing what we think godliness is in this world. Um, even if, yes, obviously, you know, God will punish them in heaven. We're not, you know, we don't, use violence against every person who's mean, right? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't share in, in what we assume God is quote unquote feeling, right? That to be a godly person is to feel the injustice and want to do anything, even if, yes, we may per, you know, be limited in what we do because that can be dangerous. I, 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 I take that correction or I take that limitation. Um, yes, I think, I think that is definitely true. Um, okay, Fine. I think I got the comments that were so far in the chat. So I have a um, question. Yes, Nahum. So there's <laughs> a big gorilla in the room that maybe we've only partially addressed that you'll do later on. And I'm going to introduce it by calling it sociology. And that, you know, things in the text of Torah or even in the Gemara, you know, just were not necessarily known, or maybe there were different conditions. We just read Parsha's Mishpatim last week. If you accept that 
in the divinity of Torah that things are perfect, how do you understand, you know, slavery? Um, so there are nuanced, you know, approaches that the Torah knew that, but gave us a moral approach to how to do it. But it could easily have said, slavery is forbidden. Um, so that's just one. I mean, fast forward all the way up to, you know, modern day halacha um, in terms of, you know, issues, I'll just choose one of artificial insemination. And a major controversy between, I believe, the Satmar, you know, Rav and Rav Moshe in terms of its, you know, permissibility and understanding how that plays out. It seems to me that each of them is trying to be, if you will, textually based derivative, but no one ever faced that sociology. Um, and I could go on and on. So, so unfortunately, at least in this course, we won't get to it. You know, like I said, six weeks, <laughs> I've been teaching methodology of sock now for, for a while, and I've given hundreds of shirim over the years on it because it fascinates me. That unfortunately isn't make, didn't make it into this six. Um, you, there are, is a lot packed in there. Um, yes. What? And those are all very important topics, both the question of how do you deal with laws that seem to be immoral, um, slavery being a good example, Aishat Yifatoar, um, you know, take, take your pick. Um, on the slavery one uh, in particular, um, Rev Gamliel Shmalo um, has, a nice, uh, has a nice summary article of the three main approaches in modern um, post-skim. Uh, like in the last 200 years of how to deal with slavery, he, he I, identifies three approaches uh, there. Um, I'm I'm trying to get the link here so I can put it in the chat, but whatever <laughs> for some reason, Yu Torah is not letting me do it. But it's on Yu Torah. It's from uh, a Torah Mada journal a few years ago, uh, not a, a while ago. But it's um um but it's uh but it's it's on Yu Torah. I downloaded last week when Yu Torah was letting me do it. Um, to give to my students, because one of my students asked while we were talking about Mishpatim. Um, so it's a very, very important question, but yeah, it's it's a topic in and of itself. And yes, there are those who are, suffi are suffi suffice with limiting the law's application. There's some, as you note, River Binovich's approach in Dark Ashel Torah to saying the Torah eventually wanted to get rid of it, but it couldn't do it, so it did it in stages. All types of approaches. That's one area of halacha that you're right we you know you have to deal with with which complicates the question of getting the spirit of the law which is what happens if you think that the spirit of the law is either your morals tell you it's wrong uh, and then how do you deal with that do you limit the torah do you limit your own moral interpretations do you claim that the torah was pointing in a direction but wasn't ready to 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 mandate it yet and then what do you do with that right that's a very important question um, and has a lot of implications. And yeah, and, and uh, Shmalo's article is fascinating. Rubrovinovich's article is more systematic um, with his approach because it deals with his approach to slavery and to polygamy and to a host of other questions that, that, um, that hit that, but you're definitely right. A second issue that comes up with sociology, um, this is more Talmudic than, than biblical, is, <laughs> is what do you do when the assumptions of Chazal, psychological, sociological, scientific um, 
you know, et cetera, um, are either turn out to be wrong or turn out to be not, don't seem to be the same as they once were, right? So in, you know, the scientific cases are well known that Chazal based Halachot and Shabbat on the fact that they assumed that, that lice um, spontaneously generate, which they don't. Um, what do you do with that? Um, or sociological ones where probably the most controversial one of the last 50 years was what do you do with Chazal's assumption that women would rather be trapped in a bad marriage than not be married and the implications that that has on, on marriage law, right? Marriage law, divorce law, aguna, et cetera. That was quite famous because of the fight between Rabbi Soloveitchik and, uh, and Rabbi Rachman um, over the question of, of how you deal with that. Um, so yeah, these things are, you know, both of those sociological questions are very important in terms of how do you apply law, uh, both biblical law and the spirit of it and, and rabbinic law. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, that is not in this six week uh, course. Uh, it was, for the record, it was these were topics that I pitched when they, when, when, when uh, Ray Zuckier approached me and asked me which topics I wanted to, I, I said, I, you know, I love talking about those topics. But, uh, but the choice was made to pick the more historical ones, right? The ones that focus more, not just on methodology, but on, on tracing the history of, of the way PSOC works, which is why we chose the six that we did, um, because they, they help us understand the history of the development of PSOC in addition to methodological points. Um, the ones that were more ahistorical, um, meaning not ahistorical, but they didn't trace the history of PSOC. They just deal with questions in methodology of sock um we bracketed maybe for the future who knows uh, but not for the for these six another <laughs> class yes uh, another class and like i said you, you email me i most of these i've given cheer on at some point um right. in some way or i've blogged about it or i've written about it i also i wrote a an article a few years ago for Lairhouse on on a, an issue that bothers me on on religious tolerance um is it something that you know halacha can can deal with can it, can it embrace it, swallow it, um, tracing different views in the, in the early years of the state, um, both in 48 and in 67, Rav Herzog's view and, and Rav Kasha's view uh, and Rav Hinkin's view. Um, so these are things I've thought about a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I've done it, you know, I, I like teaching about it. I, 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 like, I, like, I like using dead issues to explore live issues, right? I, I, I like exploring the implications of, of some of the um, you know feminist implications of these things through the lens of the question the earliest 20th century of women voting. I like it because it's a dead issue to most people. At this point, all postkim have come around and said it's mutter, right? Which means that we can explore the types of arguments that postkim made um, without getting emotionally invested in it because we know the conclusion, so to speak. But then we can show how those exact same models keep coming up you know, every single time an issue seems to touch on it. So it's a nice sort of, so I love talking about these things, but unfortunately it'll have to wait till the, fortunately or unfortunately, it, it has to wait for the future. I guess fortunately, if I have the opportunity to learn more with you on these, then fortunately, because I'm happy for these conversations to go on for forever. Um, Thank you. Uh, I see Ben ask, can I give on, on Tandu? Ben, I'm happy to do it at some point. Um, Ben, I feel like I've been learning with you for years, besides for the case that you actually came and visited me in person. Um, um, 
but uh, but yes, I, I could give on, on it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that often the rub is not <laughs> is not framed for what it is, which is an, an articulation of a view that that um, is quite prevalent in Brisk, and and you actually see the precursors to it in Rebbe and Wasserman, um, in some radical passages in Rebbe and Wasserman. Um, so I, I don't think I, I think that the rub's view can actually be traced um, through a certain through a certain methodology of sock. So I think there's a lot um, a lot there, and uh, and uh, it's it's more complicated because. You know, part of it is how do you understand Okimtod, and some of them is you know can they be reversed, right? Meaning, already in some early Chuvot, way before the Rav, um, um, there were poskim who flipped flipped that Okimtod on its head um, and used it to justify getting women out of marriages rather than keeping them in marriages. So it's also a question of how you use it. So it's a very complicated topic. Um, but yeah, I, I could try to give cheer on it at some point. I don't know when, but. If you remind me, Ben, if I'm giving it, I'll, I'll email you that, that I'm giving it so that you know to look out for it. Um, Thank you. Okay. Pleasure. It's good to see you. Okay. Um, okay. Well, thank you for those who stuck around for the uh, for the post-game, uh, whatever, post-game discussion. Um, thank you so much, uh, uh, Rabbi Ziering. <laughs> Uh, I really appreciated you uh, taking the questions and uh, the very interesting third class for the series. I can't wait for next week. Uh, and thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our spring program tomorrow, uh, Tuesday at 1 p.m., with a first class in a new series on the world of doubt between human and divine, between law and reality, with Rabbanit Yael Shimoni. In addition, we always have many more classes happening. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Rabbi Ziering, and for everyone who Thank attended, you. we hope to see you at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Thank you so okay. much.